About 10 years ago, the church, after dealing with some difficult circumstances uh, uh, within the family of Village Bible Church and looking forward to a new day dawning for us as a church, got together the leaders of the church and came up with a mission statement. And the mission statement's going to be our guide uh, for the next three weeks where we're going to talk about with, the, with, of course, the authority of God's word before us, what God is calling us as a people uh, to be a part of. During that time, we, we came up with this mission statement, one that many of you know, and some may not be as, as well-known uh, to it, but we want to love Jesus to the point of transformation. We want to love each other to the point of sacrifice, and we want to love our neighbors to the point of action. We believe that if we do that, we believe that if we allow the Spirit to empower us in that mission, that we can change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? How do we love Jesus to the point of transformation? How do we love each other within the church to the point of sacrifice? How do we love our neighbors to that point of action? We want to take the next couple weeks and talk about that and see what God's Word has to say on that subject matter. And today we look to the subject matter of loving Jesus to the point of transformation. Because if we don't get this right... We won't get the other two right at all. And so open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go and grab that Purack Bible on page 571 is where you'll find our text. And we're going to camp out there for the rest of our time this morning. So 571 is the page number. And to show reverence to God's Word, we stand for the reading. So let's go ahead and, and let's stand and let's acknowledge that these are words not of the man Isaiah as much as they are the words of God. And let's give him the reverence that's due to it. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. He says, I dwell in the, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Father God, my prayer is simple this morning. We have worshipped you in your majesty, and we now worship you in your word this morning. So Lord, show us ourselves in your word. Show us our Savior in your word. And release us by your spirit to live the truths that we learn today. 
in the days to come. Because you are the only glorious one. And it is our privilege to honor you in this way. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I want to speak this morning on the subject of encountering Christ means experiencing change. As we live our lives, there are three types of events that fill the day's activities. Write these down. These may be helpful for you as you work through your own things. I didn't get this from any smart man. They, they come from your pastor, okay? And you can use them freely if they are of help. But there are three types of events in, in my life, and I am sure they are in your life as well. The first one are the mundane things of life. The mundane activities and, and events. What I mean by that is this last week I was a part of lots of meetings and lots of appointments. And uh, of course I served many people in my catering business. Uh, I was involved with employees. I, I, I was doing a lot of things. And no doubt in your life you're doing a lot of things. But the mundane events of life are those events that in a month from now you're not going to remember them. In a month from now, if someone was to ask you in the first week of September, hey, Tim, what did you do that first week? I'd say, well, I went to work, and I'm sure I had some church meetings, and, and I'm sure I did some counseling and, and prepping for sermons. But beyond that, I, I really don't know what I did because those events are in the past and they're forgotten. And no doubt your life is full of the mundane things. They're important, but they are by no means anything earth-shattering. And so we live life in the mundane, but also we have in events in our lives that I call memorable. They are the memorable ones. What I mean by that is they're not simply events that we forget about, but they're things that we remember. Birthday parties and holidays, vacations. I can remember some of the vacations some 20 years ago that my, my parents took, a, took us on. I remember going to Walt Disney World as a fifth grader, and I remember many of the activities we were a part of. And, and with great nostalgia, I remember experiencing some of those great things. I remember in my third grade, uh, my parents let me have a, a big birthday party where I can invite not just one friend, but multiple friends. And I remember the joy of, uh, of being uh, around my friends and, and having fun and enjoying that. I remember that even though it's years in the past, they're memorable experiences. And there's mundane and there's memorable, but there are also experiences in our lives that create within us, if you will, and good luck spelling it, a metamorphosis. A metamorphosis, a transformation, a change. Now this is different than the mundane things. Mundane events don't change who we are. Even the memorable ones, they're, while they're important and good, uh, they're good for the moment. They don't change who we are. In many ways, the memorable moments, if you want to understand the difference, the memorable moments are moments you look back to the past with, and that's where they stay. They're in the past. The, if you will, transforming moments in our lives are the moments that grip us in the moment and then change the way we live our life for years to come. As a nation, this week, we commemorate 12, I believe it's 12 years now, of 9-11. 9-11 was not a mundane Tuesday if you were around for that time. There was nothing mundane about that event, about that moment in history. Yes, it was memorable in the sense that we remember where we were and what we were doing, but it would be a metamorphosis, if you will, a transforming moment because our nation would never be the same. 
the way that we looked at life and security, the way we traveled, the way we looked at our enemies would never be the same because it was a life-changing event. That which we commemorate this week. For many of you, you know that the month of September is a, is a near and dear month to me because of a metamorphosis that took place. It didn't start out well because on September 17, 1990, I lost my brother to a car accident. 23 years ago. And I can tell you there was nothing mundane about that day. And I can tell you there was great memories, if you will, in the sense of memories. I can remember everything. I can give you a bullet-by-bullet uh, bullet time frame of all that transpired because it's etched in my mind forever. I will go to the grave remembering that day more clearly than any other day that I can remember. But that day and that moment, just as 9-11 did for us as a nation, September 17th, 1990, would forever change who I was. It would change the way I look at family. It would change the way I look at myself. It would change the way that I would view God. It would change the way I viewed the church. It would change the way that I understood life as I know it. It was a life-changing event. I would never be the same. My life would be forever different because of that one moment in time. So now we talk this morning under the idea that we as a church say we want to love Jesus not to the mundane, not to the memorable, but to a place of transformation. You see, some of us this morning have a relationship with Jesus that's mundane. What I mean by that is you're here, not because God has changed you per se, but you're here because it's a part of your routine. You go to work Monday through Friday, you mow the grass on Saturday, and you spend the first couple hours on Sunday in church. That's what you do, that's what your parents told you to do, and so you do it. God did not save you to be mundane. God did not save you so that you could have something on your calendar that says, well, I need to be somewhere at this moment. Nor did God save you to be some nice, warm, and fuzzy memory in your past. What I mean by that is there are some here today who came to know Christ maybe at a younger age. Maybe it was through a camp experience or some evangelistic crusade, or, or maybe it was mom and dad kneeling by the bed with you and praying, and you experiencing God in that moment. But those memories are all in the distant past. And maybe you find yourself that the only spiritual uh, idea you can get is looking back and remembering with great affection what Christianity and church and, and your life in Christ used to be, and all the while for years now there's been no transformation. The Bible is clear. The Bible is absolutely clear that Christ does not want a mundane relationship with us, nor does he want simply a memorable relationship with us. Hear me out, church. God wants to transform your life. He wants to change you from the inside out. He wants to change every part of you. He doesn't want parts. He wants the whole. And he wants to transform you because when he transforms you, God is glorified. And so this morning, we come to a text that is far from mundane. Oh, it's memorable. Isaiah would never forget what he saw, but he would be changed. 
So there are three things that bring about transformation this morning. If we want to love Jesus to the point of transformation, let's look at what the Old Testament tells us. You may say, well, that's kind of weird. Jesus, and you're going to go to Old Testament. Who did Isaiah see? He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus sitting on his throne. And what did that experience do for him? Number one, it allowed him to encounter, and as a result of that encountering, to exalt the majesty of God. To exalt the majesty of God. In your text this morning, we see these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Oh, we've sung this already this morning. How holy our God is. And what an opportunity that Isaiah has before him. Notice in the text, Isaiah doesn't tell us where he's at per se, what time the vision takes place, is it daytime or nighttime. It doesn't tell us uh, what he had eaten that day or, or what was going on in, in the events of, of his family's life. All it says is very clearly, I see something. I had a vision. And this vision is clear. And what it would allow is what God has done numerous times in, his, in the scriptures is to pull back the curtain of his glory and to give some of his children a glimpse of that. The apostle Paul would say, speaking to the church at Corinth, that being caught up into the third heaven, I saw glories unspeakable in the human language. What I've been a part of, what I've seen, I cannot put in human words. And I'm thankful that at least Isaiah in some way could share a little bit about what he saw so that we might be partakers in that as well. And with his feet firmly planted here on the earth, he was able to see and notice what he saw, a place of utmost worship. This worship would grip him to the very core of who he was. And yet some of us would say, well, it sure is nice for Isaiah to have done that. Of course, I would exalt his majesty if I had been there. But here's the truth that we know, that we too are able to experience the presence of Almighty God because of the person of Jesus Christ. And so what are we to worship? And why are we to worship? And how are we to worship? Notice Isaiah helps us with this this morning. Notice the reason why we exalt the majesty of God is simply put this way. Because he is God. Write that down. He is God. I saw the Lord. Now let's stop there for a moment. Isaiah doesn't say, I saw a Lord. I saw one of the Lords. I saw someone who looked like the Lord. Read the text again. I saw the one and only. Isaiah would stand in the presence of the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this prophet who is standing in the same room as the Alpha and Omega is awestruck by what he sees. Now there's a couple reasons why he's awestruck. Notice and write this down just on the side of your, your outline there. What we know and understand about God, we need, we need to understand if we're going to worship, we need to worship what we know. And so it's good to be knowledgeable in our worship. So why does Isaiah worship God? Because he is God, and he is the God, and write this down, who is alive. He's the God who is alive. Notice that this text takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. 
King Uzziah was a great king. He was a king who would serve his God and his country, Judah, for 52 long years. King Uzziah would be a king who would bring great peace and prosperity to the southern kingdom. And as a result of those longevity of of great service before his God and his country, the land of Judah would prosper during his days. He was known for his military victories. This was a king who not only sat on his throne, but when he went out with his armies, he always came back the victor. And during his final years of leading as an old man, you would think King Uzziah in his his old age uh, would continue to serve God. In his younger days, it said that he served God faithfully and he held to the statutes of the Lord. But 2 Chronicles tells us that that's not the case. Write this passage down for you to look at later. 2 Chronicles 26, 16 tells us that as an old man, his heart began to grow proud. You see, as an old man, Judah began to really appreciate their king, and they started to do these festivals, and they started to do these parades, and they started to pat their king on the back. You're a great king. You're an awesome king. You're, you're the best king we've ever had. What, what would we do without you, king? And instead of giving the glory to God and, and pursuing God and humbling himself, he began to get a big head, and he began to become proud. And the Bible says that he became so proud that he walked into the temple of God and in essence he said, I'm going to run the show, not God. I'm going to do things my way instead of doing them God's way. And God got angry. It says he was so upset that he struck his servant Uzziah down with leprosy. And he would struggle with leprosy, an ugly disease, a a very uh, sick disease. I mean, who would want their king's skin falling off right before their eyes? King Uzziah would not uh, have uh, much time to live after being struck with leprosy. And so this nation of Judah goes from a place of great longevity and peace and, and prosperity to now a king they can't even look at, to a king now who is dead. Where the enemies now are looking at an opportunity where there is no king and it's ripe for them to take the country of Judah. In the year that King Uzziah died... In the year that everything seemed to be going the wrong way for the nation of Judah. In the year that King Uzziah died when the bad moon was rising amongst the enemies. In the year that King Uzziah died when Isaiah saw that an earthly king as powerful as he was, was dead. In the year that King Uzziah died, understand this, God was alive. Don't miss the incredible truth this morning that this verse holds. Some of us right now are in the year of trouble. In the year that I got my pink slip. In the year I lost my marriage. In the year the devil wreaked havoc in my life. In the year my child ran away from God. In the year that money ran out. In the year that cancer came back. In the year that trouble surrounds me. Understand in the year of your trouble, God is alive. And because God is alive, and because he reigns supreme in heaven, it don't matter what's going on in this world because we are serving and worshiping the living and true God no less than 12 times in the New Testament. We are told to worship the living and true God. We do not worship a God who is in a grave. 
We do not worship a God made of human hands, but we worship the God who created everything, including giving us life and breath. And he is alive, as alive as he was when he started the hands of time, and he'll be as alive as he was then, as he will be when he closes this show down. This is not a God who grows old. He is not a God who becomes elderly. He is a God who is full of strength, full of vigor, and full of all of the power and majesty that is at his disposal. He's the God who is alive. Notice the second thing this morning on your sidebar there. We'll get to the outline at some point. He is the God who is at rest. Now notice, in the year that King Uzziah died, for us, we would say that the translation is, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord running around like a chicken with his head cut off. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was pacing the throne room wondering what to do. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw my Lord and he had bloodshot eyes because he hadn't slept in weeks wondering what he was going to do. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw him frantically telling the angels to go here and there just trying to fix the problem. In the year King Uzziah died, not only was God alive, but in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was seated on his throne. Not worrying not fretting, not wondering. saw an uh, interview this last week where, and I don't mean this in any political way, but our president's losing sleep. He's struggling. He's got a big decision he needs to make. It seems like the, the country is not all that on board with him, and he's, he's wondering what to do. And some of the closest advisors say, the guy's not sleeping like he should be. There's stress. God does not act like Barack Obama when trouble comes. God is firmly seated on his throne because God knows the beginning from the end. God knows that his plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. God knows and understands all that's going to transpire. He moves kings and kingdoms to do what he wants them to do. And God is completely at ease. All the while the world's powers are talking war in Syria, God sits there and says, all that will transpire will happen according to plan, and I can sit and be worshipped and enjoy my glory and not worry one bit. Oh, you and I, we wonder what today will bring. We wonder what's going to happen, not God. He's the God who is alive. He's the God who is at rest. He's not worried one bit. He's not sweating up there. So the question is, why are we? Why are we worried? God says, why worry about these things? Give it to me in prayer. Notice this morning, he is the God that we exalt his majesty because he's high and lifted up. He's the one who calls the shots. Notice, he is the one who is sitting on his throne and he is high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. You see, this idea is a picture of total supremacy. God is the one who's in charge. He has angels, myriads upon myriads of angels at his beck and call. And what Isaiah saw was a magnificent one. Words could not express the fullness of what he saw. But he gives this description that the train of God's robe filled the temple. 
The idea there of the train of the robe, of course, we, we don't have to think very far uh, to see brides as they come down the aisle with their long trains on their dresses. And the train is, is to be attended to. As the bride comes down, and as, as I've done many mar- or weddings here, the bride will come up to this place. This is where our weddings take place. And she comes up, and there's a bunch of ladies standing over here. And whenever she turns, the job of the ladies that are with her to be her attendants and to make sure her train is all where it needs to be, that it's fully extended in all places. God has myriads of angels just attending to his robe. A long robe in a, on a bride says, today I don't work. Today people work for me. Today my day is to just be beautiful and to smile and to enjoy. The robe on Christ is a robe that says, today is not a day I fix things. It's not a day where I work for a master. Today is the day where people work for me and I glory in myself. He has a robe. And it's filled the temple. It's all-encompassing. But notice this royal gesture that takes place moves us then to what the angels say. And that is that we worship and exalt the majesty of God because He's holy. He's holy. We get a picture of religion when we think of holiness. You're a holy roller, right? You've heard that, no doubt, at work or at school. And we get this idea that because I'm religious, I'm holy. But we we don't understand that holiness is not an issue of religiosity, but it is an idea or a word that speaks that we're set apart for something. We're different than those around us. And so when we are called to be holy, just as God is holy, it is not just speaking about that we are to be uh, perfect and sinless. That is impossible on this side of heaven. But we are called to be different. We are to be like God in a world of sin. And so, yes, we can be holy as God is holy, set apart from the things of this world. And notice what we see. This holiness was spoken about by the angels. Now, let me do some theology for you today. That when we talk about holiness, we think about sinlessness. Here's the problem that Isaiah tells us. It is not Isaiah who says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the angels. And if you understand your theology enough, then you will know that the angels who are worshiping God are perfect. They're sinless. They're in the presence of God day and night. They're serving Him. At the time of the great rebellion in eternity past, before the creation of the world, a third of the angels made a singular decision that caused them their doom and destiny in hell. But those who stayed faithful and loyal to God are forever in their place of perfection. So here are these angels, and notice these angels who are sinless are still, notice in the text, they're guarding their faces, they're covering their feet. Why in the world would they do that? They don't have any sin to worry about. Because God's holiness doesn't just speak about his sinless perfection. It reminds us, as well as the angels who are worshiping him now, that God is so much greater, so much more powerful, and so much out of the angels' leagues. And so just as Moses had to take off his sandals for he was walking on holy ground, so the angels must fear to tread in the place and presence of God because God is so much greater and so much more powerful and wise 
and good than even the perfect angels that attend to him. And so what are the angels doing? They're worshiping God. The only response they can have is, God, you are so much different than us. You are so much greater than us. We're going to do exactly what you say, and we're going to serve you. Now, here's the audacity of our response. We are sinners, and we think we can tread on God. We have sin in our lives. The angels don't even have that, and they fear to go that place. And we go there all the time. We shake our fist at God, and we tell him that he's not the Lord of all, but that we are. Now notice, what are they busy doing? They're serving God, and notice in the text, it says that they're crying out, they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Now now why in the world do they do holy, holy, holy? Let me tell you the reason, so that the stands of the song would fit. That's not the case. So why do they do it? Some scholars believe that what what the angels are doing is they're showing us that God is, is one, yet he is triune. God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Spirit is holy. That could be. Others believe that what is being used here by the angels is repetition to not say, God, you are once holy. That's not holy enough. God, you're not twice holy. That still doesn't cut it. God, you are thrice holy, three times holy. And we could go on and on in a a measure of three. Three says that forever you are holy, in all ways that you are holy, in all responses you are holy. It is in a picture of infinity. God, you are infinitely holy. So here is Isaiah, and he's seeing all this. And he's experiencing God in a way that he had never done before. And he's seeing all that God is doing. He sees the angels are worshiping. And he responds. And I want you to notice his response. The first thing that he notices in verse 4 is that the foundations of the threshold shook and the voice of him who, at the voice of him who called... And the house was filled with smoke. What's happening is, is Isaiah's getting really nervous. Think about how nervous you would be if you're standing in the presence of God and you're seeing these incredible angels flying about in an angelic voice singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And then the foundations begin to shake. And smoke begins to rise up, and you're hearing voices, these commanding voices calling out to their God in heaven. And I will tell you, while that scene was going on, the only thing that Isaiah could do was worship. Now you say, of course, Tim, I would totally worship God. I would totally, there are some of you, man, your hands are cemented to your sides. Even though the scripture says lift up holy hands, hands, pockets. I'll never do it. But if I was in heaven, I would do it. I'll do it there. I'll never clap. No, no, I'll never amen. No, no, no. But, but if I was in Isaiah's shoes, you bet I would do it. If I was a part of that. Let me remind you of something that the scripture in our text says. Notice that this doesn't just happen in heaven holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth wait a minute not heaven earth 
is full of His glory. What Isaiah saw, brothers and sisters, we can see every day. I need to be moved. The, the piano wasn't playing fast enough. The guitar wasn't, wasn't getting me in the groove. Let me tell you something. Worship is not about the music. It's about His majesty. And when you begin to realize that, when you begin to wake up and say, Lord, you've given another day, you've given me life and breath, you've given me a world to live in, you've given me food to eat, you've given me a family to love, holy cow, God, you are awesome. You are great, you are grand. And what he begins to see is that it becomes very dangerous for him. Because notice what takes place in the, in the storyline. In the storyline we see that it isn't just an issue where he experiences the exalting majesty of God. But notice that we see he experiences his mercy. You see, worship is going to call us to something. When we see God, we're going to see ourselves. Our transformation begins when we take some time to see who God is. That He is all that He is, but it doesn't end there. Because listen to me, God's holiness will demand something from you. You can't be a spectator of God's glorious grace and mercy and love and power and authority. Because you'll become uneasy. You'll become uneasy because notice Isaiah is there and he's the only one that's got the problem. He's around angels. They're perfect. They got no sin. They're okay. And they're still revered and, 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 and reverence to God. But they're okay. Their, their fellowship has is, is not um, been blemished by sin. Jesus Christ has perfect union with the Father and the Spirit. So everybody's good. And then there's Isaiah. And Isaiah's there and he's starting to get undone. He's starting to feel the foundation shake. The fog begins to rise. And the only thing he can come out and say is, Woe to me, I am ruined. He becomes uneasy. Not too long ago I told you as a church we need to be uneasy about the songs we sing. I could sing songs to Amanda. I could tell her I would climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest ocean just to be with her. And she would know that I could never do that. The heart wouldn't allow me to do that. She knows my frailty. She knows my flaws. But let me tell you something. We need to be careful that when we give empty promises to God... We don't just sing because the melody sounds good, but we are moved to a place that says, Lord, I want to do your will. Lord, I want to do the things that I'm singing about. Because notice when we worship God, we're going to recognize something. Hear me out. We are going to recognize that we don't belong here. When Isaiah was worshiping and seeing the worship of God, he knew he didn't belong there. He knew he was out of place. Now, if anybody was to have a seat at that table, it would have been Isaiah. God says great things about Isaiah. He's a major prophet. He would have been the dude. I mean, he was the most spiritual amongst his brothers. He would have been the go-to guy. But notice, the only thing that he can get to is notice he notices his destiny, his depravity, and his devastation. We'll talk about each of those. But he says, woe to me. When I was about to marry Amanda or propose to Amanda, I took my mommy and we went and found a ring. And I was going to propose to her, and what a guy does is he gives an engagement ring. And I went to the jewelry store, and I found the ring that I was looking for. And I was so excited, 20 years old, young guy, so excited. I'd saved up money. I was going to buy Amanda the ring, and I found her a beautiful ring. 
And I uttered the words to the jeweler, this is a perfect ring. It's flawless. And he just shook his head. He said, son, as much as I would love to say that my jewelry is flawless, the diamonds are flawless, he says, they're all flawed. Just put them in the right light. Put the right backdrop on them. And you'll see how truly flawed they all are. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah was seen as the most spiritual man in his day, but behind the backdrop of the Shekinah glory of God and under the light of Jesus Christ, Isaiah could only see his flaws. So beware of preachers who preach that I'm okay and you're okay and we're all okay. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of the devil. We need to understand. Now, does that mean we can't preach messages of joy and of encouragement? That we can't strengthen the timid and give assurances to the people of God? Absolutely. But let us never move from the place that tells us we are sinners in the need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we see Jesus, the only thing we will see in ourselves is what Isaiah did, our sin. Notice he says, woe to me. I may look flawless before everybody else, but in front of Jesus, I'm totally flawed. I'm in trouble, woe to me means. I can't stand here, not in my sin. Woe to me was a pronouncement in the Old Testament of divine judgment. Isaiah did not want to stay there. As much as he loved being with God, he knew he couldn't be there with God because that would create something he wouldn't be able to handle. In a book that R.C. Sproul wrote, he once shared this, and it's a bit of speculation, but I like where he's going with it. He says that the last grace and mercy that God will give to the sinner is that he will send him to hell. You say, how, how could that be a grace? And R.C. Sproul says that a sinner standing in the presence of God is a hell far more unbearable than being sent to the flames of hell. He goes on and he says in that paragraph that the sinner standing in the presence of God will plead that God will send him somewhere else. To stand in his presence will be unbearable. And God will give him that grace to not stand in the presence in sin. So notice Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. There's the depravity. There's his sin. You see, when we worship God, we're going to get real honest about our struggles. We're not going to care what the people in our small group think. We're not going to care what the person in the pew next to us thinks. We don't care. We have come before God and we are sinners. And so let me tell you my sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. And he says, well, why the lips? Why talk about that? Because Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what kind of heart you have? What words are coming out of your mouth? And Isaiah is watching the angels who day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's all they're talking about is the greatness of God. And Isaiah says, I maybe do that once or twice a week. And then I'm blessing and in the same mouth cursing. And so he begins to share his depravity. But notice he also shares the depravity around him. He says, not only am I a man of unclean lips, but I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Now, some of you from a, from a, a, a quick glance will say, well, he's, he's skirting the issue and putting it on someone else. This is what he's doing. He's saying, I've got a problem. And this problem, I can't go to my mommy to fix because she's got the problem too. 
I can't go to my pastor. He's got the problem. I can't go to my small group. They've got the problem. I can't go to my mentor. He's got a problem. This problem of sin, none of us can deal with. Because we're all people with unclean lips. And so the problem of sin and depravity only has one person who can answer it. It's Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah understands that. I've got a problem. The people I hang out with have a problem. And here is the devastation. I am ruined. I am lost. I am undone. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great philosopher, if you will, in human standpoint, said this. The idea that man is lost is the absolute idiocy of Christianity. To worship a God who is utterly holy and then in turn shows you your utter fallenness shows why I can't be a Christian at all. You see, worship should cause us to be undone. It should tear us at the seams. It should break us down. I I want us to be very careful. You know, people say, Tim, your message is, I don't go away feeling all that warm and fuzzy inside. Well, when you stand before God, I wouldn't feel that way either. It's going to undo us. It's going to ruin us. But everybody liked Isaiah. Who cares what everybody says in the majesty of God? We're sinners. But here's the thing. Add this to your point. There's a decision. Just write this down. There's a decision. And the decision, God had a choice. God had a choice. He could have ended Isaiah's life right then and there. He could have moved him uh, to the place of eternal damnation in hell. That's what he did with the angels. They sinned. They were gone. No conversation. No $200 when you pass go. Just get lost. But does he do that with Isaiah? No. Notice Isaiah confesses his sin and what true words of grace for us. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. He touched Isaiah's mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. The same prophet Isaiah who in three chapters is going to write about this Jesus who would be born of a woman who would come and be the wonderful counselor the eternal God and the prince of peace is the God who would take a coal and through the work of his angel would touch his mouth and he would represent to us what Paul would say hundreds of years later that God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us And so what Isaiah experiences is the salvation you and I experience. That our sins are atoned for, our guilt is taken away. And because of that, now you and I can be transformed. Brothers and sisters, today there are some of you this morning who have walked in and are hearing for the first time that there's a holy God who is alive. And that you, absent from popular opinion, are a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. Well, Tim, that's judgmental. Well, understand this, so am I. So we're in the same boat. And you've learned that this morning. Here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus says you don't have to stay in your sin. That he has come to take your place. And that you can be saved. You don't think that's happening? There was a woman, Kathleen, today. And I, I'm going to share this, and, and we're still small enough of a church, you can hear this, but, but a woman, Kathleen, came to our church. She's a neighbor of the Eastmans, and this is what she said. God bless the Eastmans. She said, I watched the Eastmans for years, the family, and I knew if they went to this church, it was a good church because I've never seen people live like that. 
she was in church today and she says, I've been transformed. I've been transformed. I didn't know I was a sinner. I didn't know there was a holy God in tears right outside the foyer. She says, but now I do. And he's taken away my sin. And I prayed with her and talked with her. And, and she's got great, you can't get any better neighbors than the Eastmans. I mean, my goodness. That's a little side of heaven there for you. And it can happen, and it can happen for you this morning. Be transformed. Well, why does God transform people? Why does he transform Isaiah? There's a reason. Notice it's so we can engage in his mission. I'm not going to take long in this. But here's the thing. Are you loving Jesus to the point of transformation? I want you to ask some questions this morning. And the questions are here in verse 8. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, or here am I. Send me. What an opportunity that Isaiah has. Now remember, this question is being asked of the one who is on the throne. Jesus is asking this question. And this question could have been for any of the angels. It doesn't say, and he spoke to the angels. Or he spoke to Isaiah. It just says, and he shared these things. I heard these words. And Isaiah sees an opportunity. And let me tell you something. You want to know if you love Jesus to the point of transformation? Ask these three questions this morning. Number one, are you agreeable to the will of God? Are you in agreement? Isaiah says, here I am. Notice he hasn't been told what the job description is. It didn't matter. You see, when we serve God, we want to know where you're sending me. What do I have to do? What is it going to involve? Give me the information, God. I mean, come on. I need to know things. Isaiah doesn't know anything. He just says, here I am. A person who has been transformed by the grace of Almighty God is a person who is wide open for the things of God. Isaiah only had one goal in mind. God had a, a desire to see something be done. God was looking for someone to do it. And I'm going to be the one to do it because that's what pleases my God. The only thing that you and I need to be worried about is how can I please the God who saved me? Are you agreeable? You want to know if you're to the point of transformation? Are you agreeable in that way? Number two, are you available in the statement, here I am? Notice Isaiah, at least not in my Bible, he doesn't go to his iPhone and check his Google calendar and say, oh God, um, I'd love to serve you, Jesus, but the kids have volleyball. I'd love to serve you, Jesus, but... That means I'll have to turn off the TV. I'd love to serve you, Jesus, but, 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 but that's when I play golf. I'd love to serve you, Jesus, but, but let me check with the wife. Let me check with the kids. I'd love to serve you, Jesus, but, but I'm not sure I can do it now. Let me, let me go do some things, and, and then I'll get back to you. Remember the guy, uh, Jesus asked, will you serve me? Will you follow me? Let me go bury my father, and then I'll come back. Jesus says, forget it. Are you available to God? You see, Isaiah was ready to serve in the here and now because God had forever changed him. Are you available? And finally, are you all in? Are you all in? Send me, he says. Send me. But Isaiah, what if it's to the ends of the earth? He says, send me. But Isaiah, what if God says, I got to give more of my money? Send me. 
What if it means I got to sacrifice time and energy, Isaiah? Send me. What if it means I got to go to the unlovable? Send me. What if it means I'm the only one who stands in my workplace or in my school or in my neighborhood as the only person who follows Jesus? Isaiah said, send me. You want to know if you love Jesus to the point of transformation? Ask the question, are you agreeable with God? Are you available for God? And are you all in. You want to know the DNA of Village Bible Church, what we desire? We don't want God to be the mundane. We don't want God to be the memorable. We want to be a group of people who see God as holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y, and us as wholly lost and ruined, but who experience life in Christ And because of that transformation, that Village Bible Church would be a people who strive to agree with the will of God, to be always available to the work of God, and to be all in for the ways of God. And we're not there yet. You're not there. I'm not there. But what God desires are hearts that are willing to try. And are willing to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to exalt His majesty, experience His mercy, and because of that, that you and I would engage in His mission. Do you love Jesus to the point of transformation? Isaiah did. Will you and I? Let's pray to that end. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I thank you for a church that desires this. I know they do. And Lord, what an example they are to me. Lord, let us see your holiness. Let us see it in your creation. Let us see it in your word. Let us see it in one another. Let us see your holiness and glory as it spans the entire universe. Lord, lead that then to be a place of experiencing your mercy. Lord, when we see you high and lifted up, we see ourselves low and broken. And so, Lord, I pray that you would challenge our pride and our hearts that are haughty to remember that you are the God who can save. But, Lord, that salvation means we need to confess. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be true confession this morning by many, including myself, because we've encountered your majesty this morning. And Lord, I pray that we'd be a church that would go out and do the work. Lord, that we wouldn't check our calendars and our schedules and all of that simply to find a way to get out of something, but because of what you've done, we would with great delight long to serve and honor you as the angels do each and every day. You are the Holy One. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Let us live for that glory. And let us live in light of your grace this week. Send us forth in your protection and in your empowerment because of what your word has taught us today. In Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.